today is December 2013. I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. I am a business and personal attorney and the principal of the law Peter Lamont. The firm has offices in Jersey, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss it to our listeners. Please note broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome your calls, and if you'd like to discuss any of today's topics, ask questions, or raise a legal issue, I encourage you to call into our switchboard at 347-855-8831, and you can talk to us live on the air. Uh, today we're going to have a bit of a different format. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a, a story that's come out uh, this week that's something really troubling me. And uh, then we're going to take some questions that have come and spoke on the website uh, about a variety of legal topics and try to, to answer those questions on the air. To get going with the questions, the first thing that I'd like to talk about is this recent news story involving this woman. Uh, her name is Jen Palmer, and she has been fined $3,500. And obviously, uh, as a result of the fine and, and uh, the action taken against her, she suffered credit score damage and related damages. But what's fascinating about this case is what's happened here. Uh, Jen Palmer, in 2009, bought her husband a uh, Christmas gift from a website called ClearGear.com. ClearGear.com. And she waited approximately a month for the merchandise to arrive, but it never showed up. And apparently she had paid for it through PayPal and was able to uh, dispute the transaction and have it canceled. She then tried to call the company to talk about what had happened and why she hadn't received her merchandise she made numerous calls, none of which were ever responded to. So eventually she went to a very popular consumer website uh, by the name of report.com, where uh, if you've ever been to that site, you know that you can leave feedback about, and it's typically negative feedback, about a company or a business. Uh, it's it's uh, area of frustration with a company. And it's it's a little bit different than like Amazon.com where you'd post a, uh, a, a comment or feedback about service or product in the sense that ripoff report is primarily negative comments versus Amazon, which would have some positive, some negative, some neutral. Uh, but, you know, that, that really is neither here nor there. So the idea is that she went on to this website and she posted a negative review about the company and I mean the negative review wasn't anything uh, where you know she was resorting to um, information that's not factual in nature everything that she said in the review is is true she talks about incompetency and uh, complains about the customer service and she explains her story now clear gear turns around and uh, right before, <clears throat> I guess, their statute of limitations 
runs out. I haven't looked into that uh, deeply enough to know if that is the case. But approximately three years later, they send her a notice, and they're telling her $3,500, and that they're reporting her to all the major major credit bureaus um, for not paying the fine. And, you know, this woman is shocked, and she says, I don't understand this. Why are you fining me? So what happened is Clear Gear pointed her to this very obscure section in their terms and conditions, which is listed on their website. Now, all of us, we've seen, whether it's software licensing agreements or uh, information on the back of a sporting event ticket, or any website that we go to. Every website's got tons of terms and conditions. But really, how many of us, lawyers, how many of us actually go through and read the terms and conditions to the point where we understand all of the risks? How many times have you popped in a new you know, version of Microsoft Office and actually sat and read through the licensing agreement? I mean, if you have, you know, I, I applaud you, but I think that the vast majority of people they just skip that. They want to install the software. Or they want to buy the product. Or they want to visit the website or use the service. They're not looking at terms and conditions. Now, that's not an excuse. But the, the terms and conditions that they've addressed here, which are just so outlandish, if you ask me, here's, here's what, they, what they say and what they were relying on. This is a quote from their terms and conditions. In an effort to ensure fair and honest public feedback and to prevent the publishing content, in any form, your acceptance of this sales contract prohibits you from taking any action that negatively impacts its reputation, products, services, management, or employees. End quote. Now, both from a consumer standpoint and an attorney standpoint, this is ridiculous. This is so outlandish has a chilling effect on people's first amendment freedom of speech as you know what this is essentially saying if you want to buy from us great but if you do you can't make any comments about us negative you could only say good things i mean come on are you kidding me that, that how is that even remotely fair so in response to this letter Right? The Palmers go and they contact Ripoff Report and they say, we'd like to retract what we have published. They're trying to, to get out of this because what I understand is that uh, they haven't hired an attorney and they're, they're kind of under the gun and they're feeling the pressure from clear gear. And they're also suffering this uh, damage to their credit reports, which are preventing them from getting car loans and, and other things that uh, you know, you're, you're typically able to get with decent credit. But Ripoff Report said, you know, the only way that we can take it down is if you pay us $2,000. So that, that's another situation. How, you know, if you voluntarily comment on a company and then, and then the company, you know, website, the Ripoff Report website, wants you to pay $2,000 to take down something that you freely put up. I mean, that's, that's also insane. But, but the real problem I'm having here is the idea that this is is a trend. It's something that ClearGear is not the only company that's done this before, but I've never seen it enforced in this manner. Um, 
you know, this is essentially telling consumers, talk about buyer beware. Now you've got to read every single inch conditions to see what rights you're giving up by doing business with a company like this. That makes absolutely no sense. No sense at all. And it also really has, I think, a damaging effect because I, I go to Amazon, I shop at Amazon all the time, and I often look at the reviews. And yes, there's always you know the, the fake review issue, and, and you know you can kind of see who might be posting something uh, fake or, or paid for. But in general, I'm talking about in general, you can look on Amazon and you can get a fairly good overview of whether or not a particular product that you're going to purchase will either meet your needs and, and, and goals. And I think that as a consumer, I think that's a wonderful tool. You know, before sites like Amazon, before the Internet, you, you'd go, you'd buy a product. If it was no good, you'd have to hope the merchant would take it back. And, you know, it, it's, it's time-consuming. It becomes a hassle. You'd rather go and order the right product first. So I think that these reviews on Amazon and related websites, I think, are tremendously helpful. And I think that it's a, an absolute freedom of speech issue that you know we as people, as citizens of the United States, are afforded the right to espouse our opinion. You know, what are we going to turn into down the road? You know, are, are opinions going to be something that uh, we're not allowed contractually to express because we purchased merchandise from a, from a seller? That's insane, if you ask me. So, what, is, what do these people do? No, this is still um, a, a, a brand new story, and you know, I would love to speak with them directly and see, you know, if if anything can be done to help them. But um, from an overview of what's happened here, you know, I, I think that there are multiple arguments that the Palmers can make to avoid experiencing and, and possibly to um, to sue Cleargear directly. You know, look, our firm has businesses of, uh, of every size, um, huge down to uh, sole proprietors and, and um, you know, very small business models. And we believe in protecting business from consumers who are just out to hurt the merchant. You know, there are, unfortunately, those consumers who make a living out of complaining about products and issues and trying to get things for vain. But on the other hand, we also value consumers and we assist consumers as well. But there's a, there's a balance that, that has to be struck. And when either the consumer or the business exceeds the bounds of reasonableness and pushes you know, in, in such a greedy direction. You know, we take offense to that as attorneys and, and we speak out about that and we want to get involved to help because I, I can't be told in the United States that I'm not allowed to put my opinion down on paper, down on the Internet, down on, you know, a website. If I had a bad experience with a restaurant or with a company 
why should I not explain that situation? You know, if we are prevented from stating our opinions about products and merchants and services that we use, then what good are any of the online reviews that we see? We'll just understand that, of course, they're all positive reviews because you can't write a negative review. I mean, is that the path that we're, we're headed down? I think that, that this provision in the clear gear terms and conditions, I think it's, it's quite honestly shameful because you know, as, as a law firm, we take pride in the feedback, the positive feedback that we and we've been fortunate enough that the clients who have us have all given us positive reviews. But that's not to say that if we in the future received a negative review, that we'd go and try to sue the person for, for writing a negative review. I mean, that's insane. You know, the real reason behind companies looking for feedback from their clients, it should not be simply bragging rights. It really should be to learn about the quality of your service, what you're doing right, and what you need to improve. That's the real purpose, in my opinion, of customer and client feedback. You, we who are in business, whether you're, an, whether you're a merchant, a baker, you are, are tasked with serving your customers and clients. People come to you for advice or merchandise or products or baked goods or whatever it might be. And they expect a level of service, a level of commitment, a quality of care and product. And we should give that to them. No business owner should take a consumer and not give quality service or product. And the feedback we receive from clients, it's invaluable. You know, not too long ago, we were representing a, um, a medical doctor. And he had come to me over a contract issue. But in the course of discussing the contract issue, he told me about something that had really changed his business. So he was a very, very successful um, neonatologist specializing in um, a lot of, of, of in utero surgeries. So we're talking about a doctor that's uh, internist. He's, he's a specialized doctor. And as you can imagine, he was one of, you know, maybe five doctors in, in a tri-state area that had this specialty and, and was ranked as high as he was. So the point in, in telling you this is to explain that here is a very, very well-respected, well-known doctor. And he was telling me this story about a, uh, a series of patients who had come in and one of them left, switched doctors, drove something like 72 or 75 miles away to go to another, another doctor. And he couldn't understand why. He, he said to me, you know, I thought to myself, is it something I did? So the third woman, fourth woman, fifth woman that left, they wrote him a letter, each of them individually. It wasn't a group effort. They individually wrote him a letter. And each of them said, 
doctor. We really value you. We think you're a tremendous physician. We appreciate everything you've done. But your receptionist is so unbelievably rude and nasty that we cannot tolerate calling your office to make an appointment, calling to get lab results, calling for referrals. We would 70 miles because we cannot stand receptionist. And one woman went so far as to say that it was beyond the receptionist, was also extremely rude and insensitive. Now, you're dealing with pregnant women, you know, are, are worried. Most, most pregnant women are worried about the safety of their, of their baby. They want to make sure everything's all right. And they're going to a specialist because there's generally some concern. So you're talking about a group of women that are a little... And I don't mean to just say women, but their spouses as well. You know, husbands are equally concerned. So you go into a... And you are met with somebody who is nasty or rude or insensitive. But what this doctor said to me is that, thank God that I received the feedback. Thank God that somebody wrote to me why they weren't coming. Because the next week, I fired the nurse and I fired the receptionist. And I have new people in place. And I'm more aware of what you know, the front end of my business is doing now. Because he was too busy being a doctor. And he let the front of the house kind of run itself. And so that feedback was invaluable. And since he has replaced the receptionist and nurse, three of the five women returned. And it's the three women that wrote him the letter or wrote him letters complaining. He was able to contact them and say, listen, I really appreciate your feedback. We've replaced these, these, you know, these problems, and they've, they've come back. So that's a really good story demonstrating the impact of feedback, whether it's positive or negative. Here this doctor received negative feedback. He took the negative feedback, he turned it around, and he changed his business. Now, when you have a company like ClearGear, you prohibit you from speaking the truth, prohibit you from explaining your frustration with a particular set of circumstances, it shows me two things. It shows me, number one, that doesn't really care what their clients say. They're never going to grow or learn from negative feedback because they don't care. The, fact, the second thing that it shows me, which concerns me, is why would somebody say, to talk negatively of me if they were providing top-notch quality service. It suggests that they knew they weren't going to be doing a good job anyway, and so they tried to preemptively avoid negative comments by this term and, and, and in, in, their, uh, in their services, their terms. And that's what it suggests to me. I have no idea because I've never even visited the website. But I think that it's completely reasonable to assume that the only way, reason that somebody would put something like this into is because they're expecting negative comments. I mean, that's absolutely insane. You know, in, in the practice of law, 
but have a, a client, customer, or business who's involved in a dispute with another company or individual, and we reach a settlement. One of the provisions that generally goes into the settlement agreement is a clause called a um, um, a number of things that could be worked into a confidentiality, but typically we, we refer to it as a non-disparagement clause. So in general, these non-disparagement clauses are worked into settlement agreements, and it essentially says that neither parties involved in the settlement agreement speak ill or negatively about the other. Now, why? Well, these two people have been involved in a dispute, and they're settling their claim. Obviously, involved in, 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 in litigation, for the most part, that's how these settlement agreements ultimately develop. You're involved in this litigation, and now you're settling it, and you want to make sure that you know you whom you're settling from going out and saying, "Oh my God, these guys were the biggest crooks. I you know I had to sue them, and uh, I got this kind of money from them, and they they, they suck." So in that sense, I understand a non-disparagement clause. That's that's okay. You know, I often have, have seen it in employment contracts as well. And that brings us in area where we're talking about the National Labor Relations Board and what sort of speech an employer can prevent an employee from engaging in. We're not going to get into that today, but suffice it to say that there are times disparagement clause is appropriate when both parties are cognizant of what's being requested of the other, right? So let's assume that the Labor Relations Board doesn't apply and the National Labor Relations Act doesn't apply to this following scenario, but imagine that you're offered employment and you're going to be paid a, a certain sum in salary, but in exchange for that, you have to agree that you won't disparage uh, or speak, you know, poorly about any of, of the uh, your bosses. Pretend the National Labor Relations Act doesn't apply. But you have the ability to make a, a rational decision. You analyze and say to yourself, well, hey, listen, they're offering to pay me $100,000, and all they want me to do is make sure that I don't say anything bad on social media or elsewhere about somebody that I'm working with. You have the ability to reason and say, all right, I can do that. I want to take that, that, that option. I'm willing to give up my right to complain or to speak ill about someone in exchange for $100,000. But that's not what happened in this clear gear case. Not at all. You know, most likely they didn't read the terms and conditions, and I can't blame them because I just said earlier in the broadcast, how many of us actually sit and read the terms and conditions? So they didn't read them. They had a bad experience. And then they tell the truth on an online post. And now they're getting So unlike the scenario before with the, the employer-employee, where was the ability of Jen Palmer analyze and decide whether or not the purchase of this product was worth giving up her rights to free speech, essentially? And there'll be some people that argue, well, if she had read the terms and conditions, it would have been in there. But again, people 
generally do not read the terms and conditions on websites, especially merchant sites where you're just buying a product. You know, in my mind, this, this is a contract of adhesion. And uh, I don't think that a contract ever existed, quite frankly, because ClearGear never even delivered the product. So how can you argue that terms and conditions of their, their you know, sales contract can be enforced when, in theory, there's not even a contract? You know, contract law says there's got to be a meeting of the minds. There's got to be an offer, an acceptance that is understood by both parties and then valuable consideration. That's a legal term of art. Consideration. Often it's, it's money is exchanged. So money was exchanged an offer. They accepted it. But the product never got here. The, the contract, if you will, was canceled when ClearGear breached it by not sending the product. That voids the contract. And now they want to argue that their terms and conditions contained in their obscurity on their website allow them to fine these people $3,500? I'm outraged by this. I am so unbelievably shocked that this is the tactic that a company like this would take to prevent consumers from saying anything negative about them, even if it's the truth. You know, the difference between defamation, right? Libel, slander, and the truth. And writing a negative feedback. All right? So what's the difference? Well, defamation is when you say something disparaging about somebody else or an entity. Well, okay, how is that different from what the Palmers did? How is that different from a negative comment? Well, there is one absolute defense to a claim of defamation, be it libel or slander. And you know what that is? It's the truth. If you tell the truth, if you state the truth, or the truth as you perceive it, it's an absolute defense to a claim of defamation. So in the Palmer's situation, Jen Palmer paid money for an item which she didn't receive, then called the company repeatedly and got no response. So in her mind, the staff was incompetent, the service was poor, and the product was never delivered. All are the truth. How, how do you dispute the veracity of her statements? Did she say this entire company is filled with scammers and the president of the company is uh, a criminal and they're committing felonies left and right? No. Now, had she said that, I'd be more willing to see why ClearGear would be upset. Because it would have been defamatory. But what she said was the truth. And the truth is an absolute defense to defamation. So that's the distinction there. But every single one of us 
who are consumers, and that's just about all of us, should be outraged by this. Outraged that a company would do something like this. You know, and, and don't even get me started on ripoff report. Because ripoff report, which has been around for a while, is a website that's supposed to provide customers, consumers, clients who have had negative experiences with a merchant or a vendor or a professional to air their grievances. And oftentimes, ripoff report will contact and try to intercede on behalf of the consumer. So when a consumer decides that they're receiving too much heat from their, their comment, their post, even though it's true, right? The consumer wants to take it down. Now you've got ripoff reports saying, no, you've got to pay $2,000 to take it down. I mean, that's, that's insane too. How are you, as ripoff report, serving the consumer? I mean, it doesn't sound to me like... So, you know, this is something that, that I'm, I'm passionate about because it's really upsetting on so many levels. It seems improper for a merchant or, or, or business to... And I, I understand that it's, it's written clearly in the agreement. I'm going to use the word hidden because I don't believe that Cleargear or any other merchant honestly believes that a consumer buying a product off their, or their website is going to read word for word with the assistance of an terms and conditions. So I'm going to say it's hidden. I'm going to say that it's obscure. You put that in because you don't want anybody to speak poorly about you. And then you fall down on the job. Clear Gear got the money. They never sent the product. And it took PayPal to negotiate or cancel the contract and get the money back. Yet Clear Gear claims to have been harmed here due to their quote-unquote violation of their hidden terms and conditions. I think it is unacceptable. I think it is a violation of our freedoms of speech to be able to voice our opinion with respect to a situation with a merchant. I think Clear Gear should be ashamed of themselves. And unfortunately, this seems to be a growing trend because as I mentioned earlier, Clear Gear is not the only company who is inserting things like this into their contracts. Now, you know, taking a step back for a second, there are things that can be woven into sales agreements that are legally enforceable. I'll give you an example. When you buy a Dell product, company Dell, be it a laptop or a desktop, when you purchase the product, there's no contract that you sign. But when you receive the product and you open up the box, in the packing materials inside of the, the box, there are 
warranties and instructions, and then there is some waiver, whether it's built into a larger terms and conditions or, or often separate. But there's a class action waiver, and it says, by accepting this product, you waive your rights to a class action. Now, some, some might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. But you know what? If you don't want to waive your rights to the class action, return the product. And, and separately, what is the likelihood, right? What is the likelihood between receiving a, a, or having a bad experience with a merchant over a product versus giving up your right to file a class action on a, consumer, on a, on a computer product? Right? How many times, how many of us are going to be really upset because we waived our rights to file a class action? Right? Versus how many of us have had negative experiences with merchants that we have the right to, to, to vent about, to let others know? So I, I hope you can see the distinction I'm making here between the two. But clearly, in my opinion, you know, it's waiver, those things have been upheld by the courts. All right, I'll accept that. But having a merchant tell me that I'm not allowed to speak the truth about an incident that occurred, absolutely unacceptable. Unacceptable and should never be enforced. If I were the Palmers, I would be filing a lawsuit against Clear Gear for a host of, of causes of action. This is, this is obscene. You know, it's, it's troubling because how many of us have shifted from actual purchases to online purchases? I mean, I just saw some of the stats from, you know, Cyber Monday and Black Friday and so many people. There's something like 80-something percent of people are now shopping online. You know, and the vast majority of, of that percentage is exclusively shopping online, with the exception, obviously, of running out for a small item. But the bulk of their items are being sold online. You know, and you're going to get a company like uh, like Clear Gear that is going to, you know, put terms and conditions, impose them on you. That, that's ridiculous. You know, that's why companies like, you know, Zappos and, and Amazon, I have no idea what their profitability level is. I know that Amazon had some issues a, a year or so ago, but they're still alive and kicking. And companies like Amazon and Zappos, those are quality companies to deal with. You know, Zappos has an excellent return policy for their shoes. Amazon has a very easy return policy. Those are reputable vendors, reputable merchants. And when you look on the site and you see the reviews, you get a good idea whether or not the product and services were good. And you know what What I really appreciate Amazon is that there's occasionally negative feedback about Amazon itself. They don't take that down. They don't hide it. And they certainly don't sue the person that posted it. You know, the whole idea of an online community so that we can share ideas and experiences. We can gain knowledge and understanding of a wide array of things, including whether or not 
the hard-earned money to purchase. So let's take this one step further. Now, how many of you out there shop on eBay? I would say, you know, a large percentage of our listeners have been on eBay. And when you post a negative comment about a seller, should you expect to be sued? Yeah, but isn't that what these terms and conditions and clear gear are? Well, anytime you leave a negative comment about somebody, they have the right to sue you. Clearly, there's a distinction because it was laws and clear gear. But is this the precedent that's being set? So let's everybody just put on a big smile and pretend everything is great. Is this like, you know, what my grandfather used to say? If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I don't buy that. And I don't think anybody out there should buy that. I think that every single person that hears this story about Jen Palmer should be completely outraged by Clear Gear's actions. And I think that merchants who are considering including language like this in their contracts, I think you should think twice. What is it that you're telling us as consumers? And, you know, this is coming from an attorney that represents businesses and helps them formulate terms and conditions that are fair to consumers. Now, this isn't a, a, a client advocate forum where we're talking about, you know, consumer rights. You know, we, as, as a law firm, we stand up for what's right, whether it's right for the business, right for the consumer. We stand up for, for what's right, and this is wrong. So I think that everyone should follow along with this story because it's unbelievable and extremely upsetting to see how uh, a company can try to avoid negative comments. Now, the one thing I want to add, which is a little bit off the topic but related, is that uh, online reviews, they're, they're all governed by law, state, federal law. You know, there's a body of law out there that talks about posting fake reviews. And, you know, you can actually, as a business owner, get in trouble for, for, for that, be fined for that. So if, you know, you're going to rely on these, these reviews as a business owner, don't post them yourself, right? Don't be afraid <clears throat> to learn from negative comments. It'll make you better, just like the story I told you about the doctor who embraced the negative comments. Was he mad? Yeah, he was mad. He doesn't, nobody, nobody who runs a business wants to be told, you did something wrong or we don't like this. That's human nature. But for those of us who are willing to ask, how are we doing, and receive feedback, and then not just say, well, you know, you're disgruntled so-and-so, so I'm not going to you know, give your feedback, your comment, any, any, any uh, value. Well, you're foolish. You know, we tell our business clients, go out and ask your customers for feedback. Sends out feedback after a matter is concluded. We really want to know what our clients say. I want to know, you know, as the principal of the firm, I want to know what our clients say about our attorneys. 
I want to know what our clients are saying about our services, our staff, and myself. And if somebody were to comment about something that needs changing, well, you better believe that we're going to change to accommodate the needs of our clients. Every single business should be thinking about that. Your life. Take care of your family. You are the owner of a massive corporation, whether you're the owner of a sole proprietorship, whether you're the owner of a small bake shop or deli or accounting firm. It all depends upon your clients and consumers. You know, those of you out there that don't like Walt Disney or Disney World or whatever, put that aside. Go read the books about Walt Disney written by some of the Imagineers that talk about their level of customer service at Walt Disney. Because whether you like the company or not is not relevant. But it's very clear that their high level of customer service is something that everyone should aspire to. They offer, you know, these very expensive training courses where you go out and you meet with uh, an Imagineer and they show you how to run your business so that it is truly customer-based. And they give you, you know, some, some tips. I don't know that you need to do that. You know, it certainly would be interesting to go see. But the point is, go get some books and see how you as a business can make sure that you're providing your customers and clients with what they want, not what you think they need. Let them tell you how you can improve. So for all of you out there who have seen this Jen Palmer story, I, uh, I encourage you to follow it and uh, contact me. Let me know what your feelings are. I'd love to hear from you um, so that we can follow up with this story. I really think that you know everyone should be somewhat outraged by, uh, by what's going on. All right, so I want to get to now in this, uh, in this final segment, because I went on and on about uh, clear gear. I just want to get to a few questions that have come in, and uh, they're, they're general legal questions, so I figured that we would go over them uh, on the air, because they probably do answer uh, other questions. So here's the first question, and this, this came from uh, Billy in North Carolina, and his question is I've attorneys for and every time I ask the attorney what I'm entitled to recover, you know, um, they can't give me a straight answer. Why? Now I don't have more information than that statement from him, but let's assume for a minute that Billy's question um, really pertains to uh, cases where he's the plaintiff, whether he's suing somebody for a personal injury or a breach of contract or something. Well, the answer to the question is this. Lawyers are not fortune tellers. We know that in a personal injury, an injury in a particular jurisdiction might have a range of values. And while it has that that range of, of value, there are so many other things that can affect what your ultimate recovery is going to be. So 
For example, we were involved in a case a number of years ago, and you, you might have, if you're a listener, a regular listener, have heard me talk about this before, but um, there was a case where a uh, female motorcyclist was riding through uh, one of the, the, the countryside areas of, of New Jersey. Yes, there are countryside areas of New Jersey. And uh, she was going a little too fast around a corner and wiped out and had serious, serious injuries, uh, nearly paralyzed, I mean, really severe burns and, and other physical injuries. And she retained a lawyer and they sued and they were looking for just under a million dollars for her her injuries. And so, you know, the value of their case in the mind of the attorney was somewhere around a million dollars. And if, you know, you had asked as a, uh, as a defense attorney, because I was defending the county, uh, what I thought the value of their case was, well, I could tell you the value of, of her injuries in general, but we among a number of defendants, but the county did nothing wrong. And so if you asked me what the value of her case was against the county, I would have told you zero. Long story short, the case goes through, uh, com- trials completed, the jury is deliberating, the judge suggests to the plaintiff's attorney that he take the settlement offer, which was somewhere like, I don't know, 500000 400000 from the insurance company because the judge is concerned that if the jury comes back, his client's going to walk And the attorney spoke to his client. They talked about money and value and worth, and they both believed that their injury, you know, the, her injury was so uh, significant that it was a million-dollar case. That's the value. Turns out, jury comes back, and they find in favor of the defendants, and they attribute the accident to the negligence of her as the driver for exceeding the speed limit when she went into the turn. She, but, you know, getting back to Billy's question, how does an attorney value a case? Well, it's very difficult. We can give clients a range. We think that an injury, um, you know, a French fractured ankle might have a value of fifty to ninety thousand dollars. You know, we could give you a, a value or a range, but there are so many other factors that come into play. So attorneys cannot tell you the actual of a personal injury. You know, we have a better to talk to you about breach of contract claims and that sort of thing, but predict for you what you're entitled to recover because it really isn't an entitlement. You have to prove your case. And so we can give ranges, and, and that's really the best we can do with, without you know, making something up. So I hope that that, uh, that answers the question there. Let's see. The next question involves, this is from uh, Lydia in East Orange, New Jersey. And she received a summons and complaint and wants to know if she needs to hire a lawyer to defend it. Um, I don't know what type of action it is, but you know, it, it really depends on the nature of the action and what the dollar amount of the claim is. Some sort of small 
where you know your neighbor's looking for a hundred dollars because you ran over his azalea bush um probably better to just work that out yourself and not bring an attorney in because the expense of an attorney would clearly outweigh what the case is worth, you know, the $150 azalea bush. But in general, it is always a good idea to speak with an attorney immediately upon receiving a summons and complaint. Depending upon your state, you have a, uh, a certain set period of time within which to respond. It could be anywhere to 35 days, depending again on your state. And if you do not respond to that summons and complaint within that plaintiff, who is the person suing you, can move for a default, meaning they can ask the court to grant them what the uh, request in their complaint was simply because you didn't answer. And uh, we've dealt with a tremendous amount of of, uh, clients who have come in and said, hey, listen, I thought I could do this myself. I started to answer, I filed this, and you know this has happened to me. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's really uh, very prudent for anyone who is being sued to at least speak to an attorney. The majority of attorneys free consultations. Speak to an attorney, see what your rights are, because I hate to see people you know, lose a case that they could defend simply because... They, they didn't ask, or they thought that lawyers would charge too much money. So I really and anyone else who's received a summons and complaint to make sure that you, you hire an attorney, uh, or you know, not, not hire necessarily, but speak to an attorney just to see what your rights are. So I hope that, that helps answer the question. Uh, this is in Connecticut. Uh, can a civil case that's been dismissed be reopened? There was a stipulation of dismissal without prejudice. What does that mean? All right, so here's the answer to this question. Uh, really, what, what this question is asking is, what's the difference between a, a dismissal, whether it's a consent or a stipulation of dismissal, whatever the legal in your state when something is dismissed with prejudice versus without prejudice what does that mean what does the prejudice language do for a case well if a case or claim is dismissed with prejudice that means that that case can never be reopened again that you can never refile that complaint that you could never and try to sue that individual for the same incident dismissed with prejudice. Now, to the contrary, without prejudice means that you are dismissing the case, but you are reserving or preserving your rights to refile that case at a later date, obviously so long as you are within the statute of limitations. So the answer to is a dismissal without prejudice does allow the other side the opportunity to refile so long as there is not a statute of limitation issues or issue. All right, now the next question involves 
This is a complicated question about employment law. This is from Tony in South Dakota. And Tony wants to know what constitutes sexual harassment, hostile work environment claim. Well, this is a, a very uh, you know, open-ended question. Um, it, you know, each state has their own laws concerning sexual harassment and, um, and sexual harassment hostile work environment. Uh, and then in addition, the federal government has laws with respect to what is legal and illegal. Oftentimes, file a claim with the federal government through the EEOC and uh, see if they can have. But ultimately, you, you often see, for the most part, lawsuits filed in state court. Um, so, number one, I, I would direct you to your state's law concerning sexual harassment, hostile work environment. But in general, a hostile work environment is created when uh, there are, are actions and fears um, that are going on in the workplace that are offensive, that are causing an individual to feel uncomfortable and you know there it rises to a level it's not a matter of i don't like what you know jenny's eating for lunch it, it's kind of disgusting and i feel uncomfortable so you know let's a hostile work environment it typically involves something far more you know severe and pervasive than that and it deals with an employer's response to complaints to uh, the situation, you know, have you complained to the employer? Have you told the employer that there's a problem that, you know, uh, you don't like the way that, that Sally touches your shoulders every time she walks in the chair? It makes you feel uncomfortable. You don't like it. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into play. Uh, there's not a simple answer about, oh, you know, what constitutes a hostile work environment. Employment claims, especially hostile work environment claims, are, are very fact-based. And without more facts to be able to determine exactly what's going on, it's difficult to, um, to answer that question. Um, all right, and the final question that we're going to get to here is from uh, Stephanie in New York City. If I sue someone... dollar amount is that the most that I can get now that's that's also a tricky question because um, it depends on what court you're filing in if you're filing in the uh, civil court right, because New York's court system is uh, civil court is the lowest court uh, aside from small claims court uh, and then above that the regular trial court is referred to as the Supreme Court and then the court above the Supreme Court is the Court of Appeals. So, um, you know, New York has a kind of tricky uh, designation of, of courts. In New Jersey, the highest court of appeals, which is what most people, you know, refer to, or um, well, not the Court of Appeals, but the Supreme Court, I should say. Uh, the trial court level is, is, is called the Superior Court. So um, New York's a different animal. But in answer to your question, 
if you're in the civil part, there's a dollar amount that you cannot exceed if you're in the in the civil part. So depending upon where you filed your case, you may be capped at a particular dollar amount. Now, if you're in the Supreme Court or the trial court and you put a demand in your complaint and then other evidence uh, that's uncovered through discovery suggests that your demand should be higher, you can amend your complaint and you can ask for more money. So you're not capped there per se. It really depends on the dollar amount of the claim and what court you filed in. So we need a little more specific information to answer that one, but uh, that's the general idea behind it. And unfortunately, that's uh, the last question we're going to be able to get to today. I'd like to hear some feedback from the listeners. Let me know if you like the uh, question and answer session that we did today, if it was something that you'd like to see in a regular broadcast. I also want to remind you that in December, with the holidays coming up, it is uh, our responsibility to be charitable. I I ask everybody that's local in New York and New Jersey to come to one of our coat donation centers and drop off a uh, gently used uh, coat so that we can give coats um, to those in need this winter. If you have any questions about the coat drive, you can call us at 973-949-3770. I'd like to thank you for joining me today. We'll be back next week with more legal and business news. If you have any questions about today's broadcast or if you wanted to discuss a separate legal issue, you can call our office directly at 973-949-3770 or you can email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at Peter Lamont. That's L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q dot com. Info at PeterLamontESQ dot com. Until next time, I'd like to thank you for joining me, and I'd like to uh, remind you that there's power in understanding the law. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com.